this discussion on the future of cybersecurity, healthcare, and beyond. I'm Nick Chianis, a senior consultant in Wikifor's IT practice, and I'll be moderating today's discussion along with my colleagues, actors. As the COVID-19 pandemic persists, I hope you and those around you continue to stay, stay well. We feel privileged to have you listening in and taking time out of your day. I think you'll find this conversation to be extremely relevant. COVID-19 has exacerbated the already immense challenges related to cybersecurity across industries, and it is compounded by the move to a digital environment. In healthcare, patient data and safety are at risk and increasingly targeted and vulnerable to cyber attacks. In this program, the speakers look at the challenges of cybersecurity in the pandemic era and how healthcare and other organizations can position themselves to confront these challenges. Let me bring in Zach to introduce our speakers. Thank you, Nick. So joining our discussion today, we have two excellent and accomplished speakers. Anai Santiago is Chief Information Security Officer with Delaware-based Christiana Health System and a thought leader on the topic of cybersecurity. As Christiana Care CISO, she provides strategic direction and oversight to a comprehensive program and leads a high-performing, highly visible organization that serves the organization's patients, senior leadership, all workforce members, and business partners. She collaborates regularly with state and federal regulatory bodies and actively contributes to propose state and federal regulations that govern policy and information security. Anahi is a member of several information security organizations and an active contributor on national steering and advisory committees. She is passionate and well-versed in areas of information security, privacy, strategic alignment, process development, and overall governance. Adam Isles is a principal at the Chertoff Group co-founded by the former Secretary of Homeland Security, Michael Chertoff, where he leads the firm's cybersecurity services team. Adam has a 23-year career in law enforcement and security, including early work on cybercrime as a career lawyer at the U.S. Justice Department. He later served as the Deputy Chief of Staff at the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, which is the lead U.S. government agency for managing security risk. He's both a lawyer and a CISSP, and he has spent the last decade working with large global companies in banking, technology, retail, and other sectors that help them understand, manage, and communicate risk. We have two great speakers, and Nick and I believe you will learn and grow from the discussion. Thank you for listening, and let's bring in Adam and Anahi. Thank you, Zach, and let's get started. Anahi, to start us off with this discussion, what are the elements uh, you are looking for when assessing the maturity of a cybersecurity program, especially as organizations move toward that digital ecosystem? So, so there are different levels of maturity, you know, and I think when we're, many of us are familiar with the typical maturity model where you know, you've got policies and you, then you've got procedures and you're, you know, then you're implementing, then you're um, monitoring and, and process improvement. But when I look at organizations to determine their maturity, I start by looking at the basics. Are, are they doing basic cyber hygiene, patch management, monitoring, education and awareness? And from there, start to look at the controls to determine how robust they might be and how the risk management practices are being advanced. Because ultimately, Risk management is the core of everything that we do. And if you've got a pretty sound and robust risk management program, then the rest of the components from a security domain perspective will follow suit. So starting with the basics, looking at the risk management practices, and then determining from there how advanced has the program actually gotten. It makes a lot of sense. Adam, do you want to jump in? 
Yeah, I, I would totally underscore what Anahi said around risk management is the core of everything we do. I um, mean, that, uh, that resonates. And, and the way we've kind of thought about this is by, by asking a couple of basic questions, right? Which is, and, and look, we're working across sectors. And so, um, you know, this is why we need to start with, with some of these questions. But we started with kind of a, a discussion around like, you know, based on your business profile, you know, what kind of risk does that entail? So based on your business profile, how does that make you, uh, you know, more attractive to, you know, a reasonably foreseeable set of threat actors, you know, and once you understand that and the connection between business profile, threat and impact, you can start to go through questions around, all right, um, you know, how would the bad guys do what they do? You know, to what extent do we have, you know, reasonable countermeasures in place to defend against that? Many of which are, you know, to Anahi's point around basic hygiene. Uh, does what we have in place actually work? Is it effective? And are we prepared if things go wrong? You know, we, we try and unpack things around uh, around those core questions. But uh, to Anahi's point, everything was back to risk management. Thank you both. Now, we, we'd like to pivot a little bit and uh, you know, looking at leadership in particular. Where do you both feel are the most important qualities, those three or four qualities, when looking at a CISO, what do they need to possess? And Adam, maybe for this question, we'll start with you. Well, I feel a, a little bit self-conscious um, answering this question, given uh, your fields and given that, you know, Anahi, it's actually like walking the walk as opposed to talking the talk. But uh, with that uh, disclaimer, look, I think I, I laid out the, the you know, the kind of the course of questions around risk management that I described. And I, I think, you know, in terms of, of aptitude, there are kind of three buckets that, you know, we, we tend to see, right? The first is around kind of technical aptitude, right? You know, do we understand, you know, kind of basic principles of cyber defense, you know, how threat relates to controls, how regulatory expectations feed in, you know, what incident management entails. Um, but, but then, you know, beyond kind of technical aptitude, we think about organizational aptitude, right? And, and, and this is where we're thinking about, look, before we're starting to talk about, you know, whether you know, web servers are configured, right? We're talking about business understanding and how the, the work of a CISO relates to en enabling the mission, the, the business of the organization. And that can get in a little bit to kind of communications and presentation skills, kind of executive presence, you know, uh, 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 leadership, and, and in some ways, um, political skills with a, with a small P, because I think so much of this work, and again, I defer to Ahi on this, in, involves, you know, seeing to it that the architecture, um, you know, that has is, has been kind of conceptualized and the strategies actually being implemented and updated and kept current uh, in, in, in practice. And so, and so the third bucket I look at is really around program aptitude, which is kind of really more around a discipline of kind of planning, strategic management, uh, you know, thinking about, uh, you know, policy development and, and, and uh, you know, having supervisory skills. So again, three buckets around kind of, you know, technical, organizational and program uh, aptitudes. Nahi, anything you can add? I think you hit it out of the ballpark. Yes, I mean, when, when I think about um, the attributes that make a system successful, I, the first thing that I think about is a business leader, somebody that actually understands the business that they're working in, the industry, the organizational strategy, and a leader that is committed to enabling the, the greater mission of the organization. And, and that takes, you know, that, that takes some skill and it takes deliberation in terms of engaging with leaders across the organization to understand what are their top goals, um, what is the organizational strategy, and how can information security be a partner in enabling that strategy. I also think, you know, I think you used the word 
political, I would use the word influencer. And that yes. you, as a CISO, you're, you're constantly negotiating the need for security and the balance with organizational execution. And at times you will run into barriers or you know, run into obstacles that you will need to navigate and being able to influence those around you. By using common language and by really demonstrating that you, you really are invested in a true partnership, it is very important. And then a couple of other things, um, definitely being a mentor, knowing how to grow a team. I think a lot of times in information security, we look for the unicorns, those uh, very tenured experts to build a team where the reality of it is, is that you know we need to be able to grow the team from within and teach information security as opposed to buying information security at times. And then lastly, a relationship builder. And when I talk about relationships, I'm not only talking about those internal relationships that are needed to be successful within an organization, but also those external relationships that help you to build a network and to learn from each other. Because ultimately, as a system, there isn't anybody in an organization that's going to teach us information security and help us to solve some of those complex problems. But our peers can. And so instead of wasting a lot of time and energy trying to figure something out that somebody else already has, tapping into those networks, I think, is a really important component of a successful CISO. We agree uh, on all of those things that you both mentioned and would say that, you know, just in summary, that the, the technical and programmatic skills are important. But the soft skills are critically important, right? Being able to, like you said, Anahi, uh, build relationships, be able to communicate effectively and be able to translate security in terms of business risk and be able to communicate in ways that leaders, business uh, and clinical leaders understand. Yeah, it's, it's those soft skills Nick and I find when we're talking with leaders across the country that really sets apart the good from the great CISOs. It's really those that can work, maybe they'll meet their team in the morning, in the afternoon, they're with clinical leadership in the evening, they might be meeting with the board. And in each case, they're speaking a different language uh, to those business units. And the ability to understand and to do that really makes a great CISO that we see. And just as a, a follow-up to that question for both of you, what do you both see as the optimal reporting structure for a CISO? And is it the CIO? Is it legal? Is it elsewhere in the organization? We'd love to get both your thoughts. And maybe, Anahi, uh, we'll start with you. So I, I, I don't know that there's an optimal reporting structure in terms of mm -hmm. it really depends on the organization and the culture. And so that structure just needs to be positioned in a way that a CISO can be successful without having to navigate too many obstacles. Um, I personally, in my, in, the, in, in my two roles as CISOs, have reported to the uh, CIO slash chief digital officer, but in both those organizations, the commitment to information security was very strong. And it started at the top with the CEO, all the way down to the CIO, CDO, and, and across the board. Uh, what I will say is that what does help is at some governance level to have a reporting structure directly to the board, to a board committee, to the, to the larger board, but to be able to have that line of communication and that ability to, to be able to go directly to executive management with difficult 
conversations uh, in order to re remove obstacles. But but hopefully it'll, it'll never get to that. Hopefully the organization is supportive and the board is simply there just to reinforce that support. But I, you know, I've been fortunate uh, and deliberate in picking organizations that I felt were supportive enough of information security for me to be able to be successful. I agree with uh, you know with what Ani just said, and and you know what I'd offer is that in the work we do, you know, we see we see different models in different sectors. I'd say in banking, you know, we might see you know the the system reporting maybe a little bit more sort of the general counsel or, or sometimes the chief risk officer, whereas in retail. Um, you know, we see a lot of reporting and in manufacturing as well to to the CIO. Sometimes we also see um, uh, a kind of a unified chief security officer um, that has both um, kind of investigations, corporate security, and and uh, information security reporting in. Um, it's getting interesting in manufacturing and and other uh, sectors that have uh, you know significant industrial control systems. You know, around scope and okay, our industrial control systems. You know, under this, you know, the responsibility of the CISO, we're seeing kind of you know evolving trends there. But I think for me, it's you know what what Anahi said. You know, around you know, look, there will always be some level of tension, and tension is healthy around the extent of risk and 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 risk response and, and resources that are kind of being being devoted to it. And so you get into a question around from a transparency point of view: is there visibility on that risk? you know, up to, you know, C-suite and, and board level? And is there then, you know, a sense that there you know, are reasonable defenses, uh, you know, reasonable countermeasures being put in place from a budget, from a resourcing perspective, uh, such that you can, you know, kind of look yourself in the face and say, hey, look, we've got reasonable coverage, you know, against what's, uh, what's reasonably foreseeable and we're prepared if things go wrong. And I think the, you know, the, 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 the reality even in organizations that have reporting relationships outside of the CIO is the, the IT operations organization, network ops, like, you know, they are the human beings that are deploying, um, you know, whether it's hygiene, you know, whether it's uh, cyber defense tools, the things that, you know, are, are needed for, uh, you know, a kind of a security program to be successful. And so there needs to be a, a kind of a relationship of trust there, regardless of uh, what the reporting relationship looks like. Uh, that also becomes important in an incident, you know, where, where, where you know, seconds and, and minutes count. And healthcare, oftentimes right now, we see that report up through the CIO, similar to Anahe's report for her last two roles. But Nick and I would both agree with you and Anahe that visibility is so key. Having that interaction with the highest levels, whether that's senior leadership and certainly the board as well, uh, whether that's being a part of the committee or presenting to them. But being able to really showcase some of those risks in ongoing programs is what makes us CISO effective. I would just, I would add, you know, to something that uh, Ani started with, which is, you know, around the, the kind of the soft skills involved in, in, in a CISO. And, and I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of what we had to do, you know, uh, you know, the Department of Homeland Security is to work through integrated project teams, right? Because, I mean, fundamentally, like for me, one, one of the biggest differences between successful and, and you know, kind of less successful programs is around stakeholder management. And, and so, you know, you have, if you think about kind of the, you know, life cycle of cyber defense, right, when we're, we're starting with, okay, well, like, what's our inherent risk? You know, the business needs to be involved in that discussion, you know, to, to Lonnie's point, the risk team needs to be involved in that discussion, you know, as, as you're, and then, you know, the security team obviously is involved in that discussion as well, as we move to thinking about threat and, and you know, what tools, you know, what, what standards we need to be in place to address threat, 
I mean, obviously the security organization is going to be there, but but you need IT there, like, you know, like is the infrastructure there to deliver, you know, network access control that you want or, or, or to deploy, you know, an endpoint detection and response tool that you want. And then you move through to, you know, kind of detection assurance, controls assurance, you know, you start to see, you know, potentially the audit teams to, you know, get, get, get interested. And so you've got multiple stakeholders, um, you know, that, that need to be engaged and supportive uh, in our experience uh, for a, a you know, program to be successful. Agreed. So uh, moving on to another topic, uh, recruitment and retention. What are the most important factors in recruiting and retaining information security leaders and staff and developing a diverse and inclusive workforce? Adam, do you want to start us off, Ani? I'm happy to start. I think I touched, I, I touched a little bit on this with, with my opening response in terms of um, the way to build teams. And, uh, you know, in, a, in an industry where there are far more jobs than qualified individuals, I think building, uh, recognizing that and building a team that has the right mix of talent in terms of seniority versus younger learners, I'll call them, or anal, junior analysts that, that can be taught, I think it's really important. And so building it, when, when I look at, at the folks that I want on our team, when I'm hiring more senior level individuals, I'm looking for people that want to mentor, that have an energy around helping others grow. And then I am deliberate in hiring entry-level positions with individuals that demonstrate an, a hunger to learn and an eagerness to grow and contribute. And I've seen that, you know, hiring that type of young talent, and I call it young, but I'm not referring to age, I'm really referring to uh, tenure infuses energy into a team. And, you know, and that right mix of mentorship and growth has enabled some of the junior analysts to be really strong active contributors within the first six months. And to address the, you know, the talent shortage, what I think has been successful in being able to build a team is to develop a brand as a, as a leader and as an organization where people want to come and work. And I found that when I have some of those more senior positions, I'm able to get applicants relatively easy because they are familiar with Christiana Care. They are familiar with the information security program at Christiana. And they're interested in being a part of our mission and vision. And so it takes time and it takes effort, but you know, Building that network and building that brand, I think, can help a lot of organizations solve for that shortage program by making um, one's program attractive. I think for, you know, for us, it depends maybe a little bit on what level you're talking about. I mean, we've seen good success also at, at um, there's an amazing talent pool in the military. And, you know, you think about that both in terms of active duty, you know, folks that are, um, you know, looking for, a, you know, a, a kind of a change um, in, in career. As well as the National Guard, you know, folks that are basically working in the private sector, but they have the opportunity to do National Guard service and maybe up their skills, you know, while while they're fulfilling um, their service. University relationships, I think, are also helpful. I mean, we've seen some organizations being, you know, kind of actively engaged with university communities to do that. At, at the level, as as you get to the level of CISO, um, and I'd love to hear your guys' perspective on on this, um, you know, as you know, being in the business of, of, of you know, um, talent recruitment. But I, I, would, I would offer two observations um, in this respect. One is in talking to folks that are being considered, I think there's always a concern around 
you know, is the organization hiring me talking the talk or are they walking the walk? In other words, am I coming into an organization where I'm going to be, I'm going to have, you know, the, the, the buy-in um, and the resourcing to, you know, deliver a program that's aligned to risk, you know, or, or are you looking for a kind of more of a figurehead? And I don't mean to suggest that, that uh, you know, most organizations do that, but I do think that can sometimes be a, a concern. The only thing I, I would highlight is sometimes there can be a tension when, uh, you know, a, a new senior security executive is coming into place and the kind of the, the incumbent remains in place in another role. Um, and you get a little bit of attention around, you know, fresh look versus, you know, what was wrong with the way it was being done. And that just takes, I think, empathy and understanding and respect, uh, you know, to be able to, uh, to, to work through. Hey, Adam, I'd like to add on to what you had shared about uh, the support uh, from the organization. I think like in any leadership role, uh, the CISO has to feel supported across the organization. And I also feel that it's important that there are opportunities for growth. And that's, like I said, in any leadership position, but even uh, more so with the CISO, with the challenge of the job and all the factors at play, you know, it's it's critically important that, you know, uh, you have uh, the support. And that's why it's important to build those relationships uh, across the organization and nurture and develop them. But I think also organizations need to ensure that the position is at a, an appropriate level where the CISO can be visible, can be in a position to influence and um, make an impact and serve as that trusted advisor. Great. So pivoting to our, our next question here, can both of you discuss your experiences on what you're seeing around the utilization of AI, machine learning, and other emerging technologies as it relates to uh, your security program or others you've seen? And sure. Uh, so it, it, it's, it goes back to the maturity um, of an organization and, and where, you know, where folks are in their investments. But what I'm seeing is a lot of automation, a lot of taking the human element out for speed to detect and respond. And that and that that's where most of that AI is coming into play at this point, whether it's with security operations, whether it's an incident response, the AI can really help not only to increase the speed uh, of the, the job that we're, we're been tasked to do, but it also enables the reallocation of resources. To, um, to functions that are higher value than those menial tasks like looking for the phishing email and all those other inboxes or you know, creating the tickets for vulnerabilities that have been identified in systems. So uh, there are a lot of high value applications of AI that um, organizations are adopting. However, you still have to have the basics place before you can get to that point. Um, so, so it, especially in healthcare, healthcare, which is an industry that's working towards maturity, uh, some of our larger organizations in healthcare are leveraging a lot of that technology, but some of the smaller to mid-sized organizations are really still struggling with figuring out how to, how to do the basic stuff uh, or how to get the resources to even begin to do the basic stuff. But the technology is certainly improving. And um, I think one of the advances that I've seen in information security is the movement from point solutions to platforms and where 
we had to have seven different tools for seven different things. Now we can have one platform that accomplishes over 80% of that, which once again, frees up resources to be able to do other higher value things than engineering and system management. So to, you know, we're seeing some really cool work, you know, around, you know, the, the, the kind of the bringing together of IT service management, vulnerability management, incident management, uh, CMDB capabilities onto a single platform. And that just like, how do you make life easier for people? And then so like, okay, so I, you know, you know, Qualys, I, you know, identifies vulnerabilities. Okay, let me automate the process of, you know, assigning those out to owners and tracking SLAs for mediation and, you know, getting remediation implemented, uh, et cetera. And, you know, how does that crosswalk with incidents that, that we're addressing? So how do we start to, you know, kind of, you know, unify a view around there, create kind of an asset-centric view of all of that, right? I, I would say more broadly, right, in terms of machine learning, we're seeing like, okay, how do we leverage the power of the cloud? And, you know, you think about from a threat detection point of view, you know, kind of cloud-based endpoint detection response capabilities, the ability to start to understand, all right, like what tactics, techniques, and procedures are we seeing used, you know, across the sector? And can we start to identify certain patterns that, you know, build a little bit of a kind of a mosaic theory around like, here are the, you know, hops, skips, and jumps that a threat actor makes once they've achieved some level of persistence inside an organization. Because then I can create detection, you know, rules that are, are much more precise and, and have lower false positives as a result of that. You know, I think when you think about recent threat trade craft around, you know, solar winds and, 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 and how identity and, and access management were leveraged to advance, you know, the kind of threat activity there. Thinking about identity analytics and starting to get smarter on, all right, uh, you know, this domain admin does not look like the others and to, you know, create kind of proactive learning around, um, you know, kind of use of credentials, new credentials created, I think is, is, um, is going to be increasingly important as well. The third category that I'd highlight is just, I think we're, we're excited around capabilities that aren't necessarily machine learning based, but that are focused on, on, on validation, right? And, and understanding, all right, we have capabilities in place. We spent, you know, a lot of money on them. Are they operating as intended? Um, and so we see a kind of a new kind of cottage industry of what are known as a breach and adversarial simulation tools that can, if you will, emulate threat activity inside an environment to understand, all right, like here's our threat model. Here's what we think the bad guys would be doing. Um, to what extent are the tools that we have in place, you know, capable of either blocking or detecting the, the tradecraft we'd be uh, most worried about? And I'm curious, that's just a, a follow-up here. Are there any industries you feel like are doing that particularly well that are really ahead of others and, you know, things that healthcare could be looking to as they continue to mature and, and grow? Um, I would, let me offer a general observation first. In my own experience, uh, there is like no correlation between where you are in the Fortune 500 list and the maturity and effectiveness of your security program. And my, my observation generally is that organizations that are, you know, in the, in the, in the middle of that list are often more mature than organizations that towards the, the top end of that list. And that, that's for you know, a number of reasons. I think some of it is, is sector-based. Um, some of it has to do with the fact that like, you're a large company that didn't exist you know, 15 years ago, as some of the you know, kind of major technology companies are in, in this country. You don't have to deal with Windows XP or you know, legacy infrastructure in a way that you know, if you're a large bank in this country you know, and you've become that way because you've gone through acquisition, you do. 
you know, I, I do think that banking um, has, you know, for a, a long period of time, had a lot of regulatory oversight that's been risk-based. And so I, I'd probably see banking as a sector as being, you know, amongst the most mature we, we deal with. And, and two, in terms of things that other sectors are doing, I mean, both in banking and aerospace defense, you know, to Ani's point around maturity, there's been more definition around what a maturity framework looks like in those sectors. And it's key to inherent risk, which is to say, like, not every organization needs to be at the same level of maturity. And, and so the more kind of complex you are, you know, the more complexity you have around inherent risk, the, the more severe the impact of a compromise would be not just on you, but on the rest of the economy, the, the kind of the greater level of maturity is that's expected. Um, and so, you know, the, the, the kind of the, the FFIC, the umbrella, you know, banking regulators group, you know, about a, five years ago released a, a cybersecurity assessment tool that kind of geared, you know, maturity levels to, you know, inherent risk levels. The Department of Defense has now released something called the Cybersecurity Maturity Model Certification Program, where different vendors to DOD are going to be expected to be at different levels of maturity based on, you know, the kind of the nature of what they do in the defense industrial base. That's very interesting. And when you look across uh, industries, how some are more evolved than others and uh, how mature some organizations are to others, I think there's a common theme here is that as a leader or a staff member in information security, being actively engaged at the local and national level, sharing information and intelligence and best practices is critically important. So, We've been involved with, um, uh, on the retail side, retail uh, information sharing or analysis organization. And it's, we, you know, we, we help stand it up. And I think that, you know, for all the capabilities that it has, um, you know, threat information sharing, created with DHS, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Probably the most important aspect is around trust, because what, what's happened, right, is you've had a, a community of, call it CISOs, call it directors of information security, who didn't have necessarily the same level of networks. And now they have a group of peers, you know, that they see, that they talk to on a repeatable basis and get to know, get to meet and have a, you know, whether it's for benchmarking, whether it's for kind of best practice, whether it's for, okay, you know, we're experiencing an incident of some sorts. Have you guys seen this? There's a level of trust there that I think um, it, it's, you know, it's kind of, a, you know, the, the power of the crowd a little bit and in, in helping people advance their security programs. Thank you, Adam. Moving on, uh, we often hear it's not a matter of if, but when a cyber attack will happen. So taking into account that notion, along with the current cybersecurity threat landscape of COVID, et cetera, what recommendations would you have for healthcare organizations in protecting their information assets and patient safety, especially with considering things like resource constraints and, again, moving to, to digital? The obvious one is be ready. Have a robust incident response program and, and plan that you can easily pick up and use when, you know, in the face of an incident, a lot of folks get caught with their pants down. They just don't think it's going to happen to them and invest a lot of money in all of the shiny tools. And may have very big, large teams managing those tools. But when the breach occurs, they don't know how to actually handle it. They don't know who's on first, who's on third. So not only having a good 
information security incident response plan, but making sure that it's integrated with the emergency management plan that all health organizations have to have that follows the HICS model. There's no need to, the HICS hospital incident command system. And you know that, that's a model that has been around for decades to assist organizations in responding to mass shooting attacks, hurricanes, earthquakes, mass casualties, there isn't a reason why um, that shouldn't apply also to information security. Integrating that IR plan with the HICS plan is really important. I think what a lot of organizations also forget to do is to marry that all up with a really robust communications plan. Um, because when an incident occurs, folks are going to want to understand what's happening in real time, whether that's your internal team, whether that's your stakeholders, your clinicians, but also your patients and the visitors and the media. And I, you know, I think back to uh, a few years ago when a large health system uh, suffered a ransomware attack and they kept saying, it's not ransomware, it's not ransomware. And the Washington Post was in one of their facilities with a clinician going, oh no, look, here it is, it is ransom. And so, you know, that, that creates as bigger, bigger problems. You know, bad communication can create as big of an issue as the actual incident that, that you suffered. And obviously test, 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 but also make sure that you have a good plan for when that breach occurs and you need to continue to do business. And a lot of times, you know, we think about the plan as information security centric and forget that our clinicians don't test their downtime procedures. They don't even know where their downtime procedures are. And when, you know, when systems are not available, they still need to be able to take care of patients. And testing that ability is as important as testing the response processes. So we spent a lot of time looking at what the service lines are and the critical paths for care and delivery and ensuring that we have really good downtime plans for those areas and where there are some critical paths that require investment in technology or resources ahead of time. We look to see where those are so that in the event that we do have a major downtime that, that may take you know, days, if not weeks, our clinicians can continue to deliver care and our business can continue to do business because one of the biggest issues that organizations have experienced is an inability to cut paychecks because those systems are not available and the supply chain, not and an inability to order supplies because those systems are not available. So in healthcare, it's really not just about the clinical, it's not the EHR, it's all those other supporting systems that need to be accounted for. Uh, she agrees with me, but I agree with everything that he said. And you know what I would say is investments now buy time later, right? I mean, every crisis involves you know a kind of a conundrum around how you balance you know incomplete situational awareness, potential operational disruption, you know, versus the need to continue to operate somehow and communicate with stakeholders. And so, you know, we can think about maybe at a technical level what a response or your architecture might look like. Do we have the sensors and logs that will help us, like? figure out what happened more quickly from an external resources point of view. Like, do we know who the repeat players are, you know, in response that are going to be on, on speed dial, the outside counsel, incident response firm, you know, et, et cetera. And, and do we have, you know, to 
on any point around communications, right? Do we think not just about communications, but around sequencing? Like, who are we going to reach first in a crappy situation where, you know, we're, we're in a bad situation, people are understanding it, and we've got to touch, you know, a whole bunch of people. Who, who's, who are you trying to get to first before it's in the media? It ends up being kind of, you know, a, a key portion of maintaining trust. You know, one of the things that is is particularly disturbing what we're seeing right now is is um, you know the the dramatic increase in call it double extortion, call it uh, you know ransomware with uh, data exfiltration, um, you know as as a precursor. And you know this is born of the fact that I and and look, there's no sector that's been more impacted by ransomware than healthcare. But as organizations have gotten smarter around, okay. How are we maintaining backups? You know, are they resilient to a ransomware attack? How are we thinking about restoration capabilities? The bad guys have figured out that um, you know, if we if we exfiltrate sensitive data before you know actually encrypting systems, uh, you know, that will make people uh, you know potentially uh, you know more likely to want to uh, pay the ransom. Um, and 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 they're all you know clever about this, right? I mean, so you know, hypothetically, right? You know, you have systems that that are you see starting to be encrypted followed shortly by an email from someone basically saying, you know, we're going to go to the media, you know, we're going to go to all your customers in, in the case of healthcare patients saying that, you know, we, we downloaded X sensitive data unless you pay the ransom. And so you want experts in really quickly that can help contain that situation, provide advice. The, the default answer is always going to be, well, we're not going to pay ransomware threat actors. Some organizations end up uh, doing that. If you do, right, there is a there's kind of a you know cottage industry professional ransomware negotiators that are out there that can help manage the situation if that's the road that you um, you know that the folks need to go down because you know that there are no backups the backups don't work or for other reasons. And Adam, I would add that there's I've been reading it's not rampant but I've been reading about triple extortion where if the negotiations aren't going well, then you get a denial of service attack on top of the other two. And we've been hearing also about emails that are now going to customers or in the case of healthcare patients saying, this organization has been ransomware, you need to tell them to pay us as an additional incentive to, uh, to pay. There are additional complexities you know, for, for organizations that are in the unfortunate situation where they, they may need to think about it, where some of the more prolific actors have been now uh, sanctioned by the Department of the Treasury. And so if you're in this situation, you have need to kind of think about not only do we or don't we? But are we, you know, potentially, um, you know, violating a sanctions regime if we do? You know, groups like, you know, are evil, um, you know, fall into uh, that category. Again, that's where outside experts can come in and, and, and be helpful in a bad situation by trying to help you understand whether you know you're coming in close to someone that is sanctioned or not. Thank you both. But now that I'm not going to be able to sleep at night thinking about all these pending attacks in healthcare. Um, let's pivot the conversation to to some of the solutions. So, you know, the cybersecurity, as both of you have alluded to, it, it's now threats are now four times more likely to be targeted at healthcare than any more than any other industry right now, according to industry reports. And so, Anhi, I'd, I'd actually like to start with you in terms of what do health systems and organizations need to be doing to uh, protect themselves more moving forward? And Adam, are there some other lessons learned from other industries to protect against these double, triple attacks? So, you know, I, I, I'm being repetitive in some of my answers, but I think it's because, you know, that the importance of basic hygiene is so critical. There are so many organizations that, uh, you know, the, the WannaCry, for example, there was a patch out for months 
before that pandemic hit. And all those organizations may or may not have been packed. I would say, you know, risk management, know where your risks are, know where your critical assets are and have a plan to protect them. And I think as importantly, it is threat intelligence, share information, join an organization like HISAC, which is very collaborative and that, you know, that's the ISAC for the healthcare sector. There's a lot of information sharing there that organizations can learn from without living in a vacuum and practice, practice, practice incident response because ultimately they have to get it right once. We have to get it right 100% of the time and that's just not realistic. So making sure that you're able to respond if and when you do get hit is critically important. I would pick up on something that Ani mentioned around you know, threat intelligence and, and risk management. A century and a half ago, Florence Nightingale came back from the Crimean War and basically said, we need a system, right, to kind of classify diseases, outcomes, where they're occurring, uh, et cetera. And that has evolved into, you know, the international classification of diseases, you know, you know, version, whatever it is, 11 World Health Organization maintains. Five years ago, uh, the MITRE Corporation, which is the country's oldest federally funded research and development center, released uh, publicly released for the first time something called the MITRE Attack Framework. And, and that is a kind of a, think of it as an encyclopedia of threat actor groups, uh, related tactics, techniques, and procedures, and um, mitigations and, and detections. And, and what that allows is an organization, or frankly, a sector, to start to think about, okay, based on my business profile, Who'd be interested in coming after me? How would they do it? What do I need to have in place to defend against myself? And it's focused on tactics, techniques, and procedures, which are, you know, an attribute of threat that is, I mean, it's always adapting, but it's relatively harder to adapt than an IP address or, you know, a malware sample, uh, you know, that may be leveraged in, in, in an attack. And so we see a lot of movement across sectors to, to be thinking about how do I apply threat modeling at the front end and testing related to that threat model at the back end to try and hone my, my defenses? And it's the kind of thing that a larger organization um, you know, might have internal resources to be able to develop, whereas a smaller organization is going to need help from an ISO uh, on the front end and, and, and maybe a, uh, you know, the services of, of, a, of a managed service security service provider that's, that's aligned to attack on, on the back end as well as some testing. But what, what's exciting to us about this is, you know, we think about trying to bring a level of transparency, accuracy, and precision to, to understanding risk. And so, you know, what, what MITRE does is it helps brings a level of transparency to, to threat. It helps bring a level of accuracy to, you know, threats that countermeasures. And, and you know, to, to the point around enterprise alignment, you can start to get to a level of precision around, all right, what machines, you know, have hygiene, have the basic tools that I need to defend against this versus what don't, you know, leveraging kind of an approach like this. So we're really excited about what, what MITRE's been doing. We think that there's, um, you know, more potential for it. They've now just released a, a training program um, that allows you to become certified, you know, a, a MITRE attack defender. And um, I think that's a space to watch. Thank you both. Well, moving on to our last uh, topic, and I think Boards and senior executive teams would really appreciate your thoughts around this. But what, what advice or, or thoughts would you both share in preparing for cybersecurity in 2021 and beyond? And I can imagine some of the things you shared earlier are applicable here, but it would be interesting to hear your thoughts and recommendations for boards and senior executives 
as uh, we look uh, uh, forward into 2021 and into the future? Well, I think that the, the primary point is that cybersecurity is not a technology issue. It is a business and operational risk issue. And it starts a conversation there. The National Association of Corporate Board Directors, it's just botched that name, but you know, they came out with a resource for board of directors around cybersecurity. And um, there are five, I believe there are five top things that every board of directors should be able to answer. And, and I use that slide in all of my presentations as an ending slide to you know, complete the conversation with, if I have not, if you cannot answer these questions and I've not done a good job of dialoguing with each of you, and obviously that's going to look different for every industry. Uh, for healthcare, it's about patient safety and care delivery. And so making that connection and then spending some time educating the board so that they understand the threat landscape, what an information security program is designed to do, where our risks lie, you know, it's a good conversation starter to continue the dialogue in subsequent meetings because. If we don't start with a foundational common understanding of what cybersecurity means to the organization, then it's very difficult to have meaningful discussions. And the most important point that I could make is avoid FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. That that's not an effective communication tool. And I think information security has used it for too long. Be authentic about the true threat landscape, what that means to the organization, and what we need to do in order to gain the right level of attention that it, that it needs. I'm going to offer an analogy, and I'm, again, self-conscious about offering it because I'm dealing with a set of colleagues here that are, are much more skilled in the healthcare space than I am. But I, I would think you, you might think about starting with, like, what's our patient profile? Like, you know, I mean, as an organization in a, in a healthcare context, right, everyone needs to worry about COVID-19 in the same way that everyone needs to worry about ransomware. And you know, maybe double extortion ransomware, but then not everyone needs to worry about malaria. There's some organizations that are going to be larger and more complex. They're going to have those additional risks, maybe around research and, and other sensitive information that become applicable. And once once you understand that, then you can think about, all right, well, like what diagnostics apply to my profile? Like what do I, what 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 therapies, um, what what preventive steps apply to the profile? Um, and then we can think about whether they're calibrated and whether people are trained to use them. And when you think about the challenge of ventilators um, and like getting ventilators in, but like do um, you know nursing staff actually understand are they trained in how to use those, right? As as maybe as we think about you know newer tools, some of the same challenges you know we're seeing in the context of security. I, I, beyond that, though, I think and I think he started you know with with this point in the conversation. There's an issue around inclusion and buy-in, which is like. For like, we need the patient population to be brought into the system, right? For the system to work, and so in the same way, in a security context, we need visibility on the assets, and and we need the, the patients, if you will, to be taking the medicine in terms of maintaining hygiene, etc., and ideally to be to be tracking that. From a supply chain perspective, we got to worry about salmonella. You know, we've got to worry about you know, post solar winds. Um, you know, there are reports this morning around. And kind of open source, uh, you know, libraries and PHP, you know, being being subverted. How do we think about whether you know the the, the food that we're bringing in, you know, has has been tested, you know, has 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 basic uh, health and safety standards there, and boy, is that an evolving field. It's actually an area that I think healthcare is leading in. And as you start to think about nutrition labels, so to speak, um, you know, and, and and the equivalent being software bill of materials, 
And then obviously, um, you know, there's I think there are a few sectors that are more skilled at, at emergency uh, management than, than healthcare. But like, what's the plan if if uh, you know if we have to deal with contingencies? And then from a metrics point of view, how do we track all of this? So I think that there, are, you know, I mean, you think about some of the parallels at the beginning of COVID nineteen to to countries, um, you know, that had got testing out earlier, that had strong contact tracing, that emphasized how important masks were, you know, basic hygiene, you know, social distancing, and 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 look at the relative performance there. And I think some of those same lessons apply by analogy and in, in, you know in, in this setting. Great analogy. I might steal that. Indeed. Please. Barm. <laughs> well, Anahi, Adam, we can't thank you enough for sharing your expertise, your knowledge, your time with us today in a very lively and thoughtful conversation. For our audience, thank you for joining us. We hope that you've learned a lot from this discussion and have some meaningful uh, ideas to take back to your organizations to further its cybersecurity efforts. Be safe, be well. So long, everyone. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you for tuning in. We invite you to visit wakefer.com to learn more about our expertise and leadership and view our open searches. You can follow Wikifer on our socials, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Wikifer. Wikifer makes no warranty, guarantee, or representation as to the accuracy or sufficiency of the information featured in this podcast. The information, opinions, and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only. Reliance on the information provided in this podcast is undertaken at your own risk. This podcast should not be considered professional advice. Third-party materials or the contents of any third-party site referenced in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the opinions, standards, or policies of Wikiver. Wikiver assumes no responsibility or liability for the accuracy or completeness of the content contained in third-party materials or in third-party sites referenced in this podcast or the compliance with applicable laws of such materials and or links referenced herein. Wikiver makes no warranty that this podcast or the server that makes it available is free of viruses, worms, or other elements or codes that manifest contaminating or destructive properties. Wikiver expressly disclaims any and all liability or responsibility for any direct, indirect, incidental, special, consequential, or other damages arising out of any individual's use of, reference to, reliance on, or inability to use this podcast or the information presented.